If you can turn to Psalm 110, we're sort of continuing our Advent series uh, from the Psalms, Songs of Longing, and this is one of those, in a sense. It's a very short psalm, but we're going to do it in two weeks. So, because God just packed this psalm with good stuff. So that's why it's going to take us two weeks. Um, A psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, and therefore he will lift up his head. Let's pray. Most gracious God, our Heavenly Father, in whom alone dwells all the fullness of light and wisdom, Illumine our minds, we beseech you, by your Holy Spirit, in the true understanding of your word. Give us grace that we might receive it with humility and reverence, unfeigned. May it lead us to put our whole trust in you alone, and so to serve and honor you, that we may glorify your holy name and edify our neighbors by good example. And since it has pleased you to number us among your people, help us to give you love and homage as we owe, as children to the Father, as servants to our Lord. We ask this for the sake of our Master and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. It's it's interesting as you get older, when I was a kid, um, Christmas was a time of wonder. And many of you, I'm sure, experience that, and many of you children still experience that. And there might even possibly be some of you adults who still experience that. But for me, anyway, Christmas has shifted from a time of wonder to a time of longing, a time of yearning for something different, something greater, something better. And the problem isn't Christmas, mind you. One way in which I have this great longing is uh, seen in the political mess that we find ourselves in. I find myself longing for a government that is good, a government that is righteous. And when I read the news on the Internet, what I see is just the opposite. I see people who have abused their power for money, for pleasure. 
We see all kinds of political games that are played out. And the reality is, this is not a new thing. One of the movies I enjoy a lot is based on the uh, Alexander Dumas novel, The Man in the Iron Mask. And one of the themes that runs through this is the longing for a good king, because you see the, the king that is portrayed there, Louis XIV, is anything but a good king. He is decadent. He is corrupt. He is selfish. And the retired musketeers all long for a good king. And you see some of the abuses that he commits that affects them directly. But there's also D'Artagnan who still is in the service of the king and who sometimes is caught wishing for a good king. And so one of them uh, who has been charged with finding himself that he might kill him, the king doesn't know that he's actually the Jesuit general who's leading the rebellion against him, has come up with a plot to replace the king with the man in the iron mask who is, in fact, the king's younger twin brother. And so they free him, and this is one of the pivotal conversations that takes place in the movie. Uh, Philippe, the younger brother of King Louis, is wondering why he should go through all of this. And it is there that Athos, who has lost his beloved and only son because of the corruption of the king, says to him, But we all had a common dream, speaking of the musketeers, that one day we would finally be able to serve a king worthy of the throne. It is what we dreamt, bled for, and spent a lifetime waiting to see. I can identify with that. That's why that movie resonates with me. It's, it's not just the action that takes place as the musketeers go back into action. It is the longing for a good king that I understand and my heart cries for. Our big idea this morning is that we serve a good king in a not yet good place. And so I'm going to talk about a mysterious man, a mysterious mission, and a mysterious mobilization as we kind of work through the first half of this psalm. So there you have it already. Mysterious man, mysterious mission, mysterious mobilization. Let's start with the first of these, that Jesus is a mysterious man. And we have to start off with the fact that this psalm begins with this phrase, and it's part of what was written, a psalm of David. And so this can be taken in one of two ways. It can mean it is a psalm about David, meaning that everything written here pertains to David himself. Or it could be a psalm that was written by David. And how you answer that question really affects a lot about how you understand this psalm. And it's interesting to me that there are some commentators who think that this means it is about David. I guess that phrase has 
two different meanings because Jesus, when he speaks about this psalm, both in Mark 12 and Matthew 22, the second of which we heard this morning, says that David himself in the Holy Spirit declared. Jesus affirms that this is a psalm by David. This was one that David wrote, but it's not just David like you or me sitting out with a journal perhaps and writing some interesting poetry, but we recognize that Jesus affirms that David says these things in the Holy Spirit. This is not just David pondering, but this is the Spirit at work in David as he pens these words that compose this psalm. Now, as we look at this psalm itself, there is no clue about the historical context. We don't know when in his lifetime David wrote this particular psalm. But what is interesting is that this psalm is, in fact, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. That means it's really important. <laughs> There is something going on here that is so important that not only does Jesus refer to it, but the numerous apostles refer to it. And even the unknown author of Hebrews spends chapters discussing what's in here. And we're going to get more on that next week when we look at the second half of this psalm. And in fact, you, you could say that in some ways, the entire epistle to the Hebrews is an exposition of this psalm. Because even as it starts, it refers back in part to the very first verses of this psalm. And so an important psalm it is, and what we see at the very beginning is, The Lord says to my Lord... That's a very important thing that we can sometimes miss. If you look in your Bible, most likely your Bible will have the Lord says, and Lord there is in lower caps, which means that the, word, the Hebrew word behind that, that it's translating, is Yahweh, God. It is covenant name that He gave to His people. And so Yahweh is saying something, and he says it to someone that David calls my Lord, lowercase letters, which indicates that it is the word Adonai, or Master, that kind of Lord. And so he's setting up in some degree some distinction between God himself and this Master that David himself has. In other words, what David is doing here, what he's recounting, as Jesus says, in the Holy Spirit, is a scene from heaven. A scene in the heavenly palace. A scene in the heavenly throne room. That God is talking to someone whom David, who we presume at this moment is the king of Israel, claims as his own Lord. The fact that, they, that David had a master. David had someone that he bowed down to. That there was someone that David obeyed. 
and that God is speaking to that someone, that mysterious person. As we look at history, we see that there is no record of David being a vassal king. Now, we know from history that at other points in, in Israel's history, they were a vassal state, and therefore their king was a vassal king. But that was not true of David. David was a conquering king. David was the one who made other states vassals, who made other kings his vassals. David was, in many ways, a lord, an Adonai to other nations as he expanded the boundary, the boundaries of Israel. And so, this is in many ways mysterious as to the identity of this person. But Jesus and the Pharisees agree on one thing, that this person is Messiah. And so, oh, when Jesus brings this up in their dispute, they're not, despi- uh, dis- they're not disputing the fact that, G- that this passage talks about Messiah. What they are disputing or uncertain about is who this Messiah is. Which is why Jesus brings it up. They can't agree on whose son the Messiah was. Now, this is important. Part of the the context culturally for Jesus and the Pharisees uh, was that a son was not seen as greater than his father. The father did not bow down before the son. David was greater than Solomon. David was not going to bow before Solomon. And so Jesus stumped them with this question, whose son is the Messiah? Because obviously it can't be David, because David is bowing before this Messiah. This mysterious man that he beholds in heaven. And so as we 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 come back to Advent and as we think about Advent, part of what we should be considering is that Christmas is about the eternal Son of God who takes on flesh. Another way of thinking of that is the root of Jesse or the root of David who then becomes the branch of David and will rule. The reason why this son of David is able to rule over David is because he is no ordinary son, no ordinary man. This mysterious man is also Yahweh himself. The son of God, the eternal son of God, who has always existed, took on flesh and bone and became the son of David, that was greater than David. And so, if we think about this in terms of 1 Peter chapter 1, here is David beholding the subsequent glories of Jesus Christ, something he longs to look into but can't quite grasp. 
which is part of why it's so frequently referred to in the New Testament, because it is so hard to grasp. But this is our hope. And so David beholds a mysterious man, the God-man, in fact, who would be Messiah a thousand years before he was Messiah. Secondly, Jesus is a mysterious man on a mysterious mission. So what did Yahweh say to David's Adonai in the first place? He says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is an, what is called an enthronement oracle. This Messiah is being enthroned as the king. This is the exaltation of Jesus that takes place in his resurrection and ascension. We see this in Acts chapter 2, for instance. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, referring to Jesus, both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. If you think about that, what he's saying is, you crucified him, but God has exalted him and enthroned him as Lord and Messiah. Similarly, in Acts chapter 5, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sin. And so here in Acts 5, we see the connection. It's not just this exaltation, but the exalt, exaltation to the right hand connected to his resurrection and to his ascension. They're just applying Psalm 110 to Jesus. Kings are ordinarily enthroned by a king dying. Now that could be hereditary where you're the prince and your father dies and now you're king. Or it could be a coup, so to speak, where you kill the other king so that you can become king. And we see both of those within the history of Israel. Okay, And what we see, in a sense, is a coup attempt, a sneaky coup attempt in the man behind the Iron Mask. Or sorry, the man in the Iron Mask. They're going to replace one king with another. Here we see David, who became king after the death of, of Saul, even though he didn't kill Saul and after a short civil war between him and Saul's son. But still, what we see here is that David is looking at someone that God is installing as king. Not necessarily by inheritance, and not certainly by the death of another king. David, as king, was, as it says in Scripture, a man after God's own heart. He was a man who who longed to serve God, and yet we must recognize, because of what Scripture says about David, is that David was not certainly a perfect king. There are things that he did in today's environment which would end him up, he would end up in jail. Okay? 
assuming the press actually did its job, which might be a huge assumption. Okay, But uh, they had no such thing back then. David, while the model king, the one by whom every other king of Israel was measured, was a flawed man. And so what I see happening here is that David is longing for a good king. A king who's better than himself. A king that won't commit adultery with Bathsheba. A king uh, that will not send Uriah to the front of the, the, the war, the front lines, so that to cover up his indiscretion with Bathsheba. That's one of the interesting connection points with the man in the iron mask is that King Louis wants um, Arthos's son's fiance for himself. And so he sends Arthos's son to the front lines that he may be killed so that he can have his fiance. David longs for a good king a just king, a righteous king. And so we see that Jesus comes to power in part due to his obedience. You see, Jesus must be a just king in order for him to be exalted to the right hand of God. And so we see the righteousness of Jesus as king. He is just He is righteous. He's not corrupt or corruptible, nor does he corrupt anyone else. But he's good in that sense of the word good. We see that Jesus also comes to power after dying as the sin bearer. We see that profoundly in Philippians chapter 2, his descent, his humiliation, where he did not cling to the things of God, but he became a servant and a slave and was obedient even unto death. And then he's given the name that is above every name, Adonai. Raised and seated at the right hand of the Father because of his mercy as well as justice, because he's the sin bearer, the Savior. And so we find that in Jesus, not just a just king, a righteous king, but also, because that would be bad for us, would it not? If Jesus was only righteous, because that means he must judge us. But he is also perfectly merciful. And so we can find a welcome with him when we come in faith and repentance. So he's a good king in every sense of the word. We see that Hebrews chapter 10 ties his priestly work, which we're going to dig into more next week, with this being seated at God's right hand. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, 
waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And so he's tying in not just the priestly work of Jesus into the sitting, but also the ruling until such time as all of his enemies are made a footstool, a place for him to rest his feet. See, and that's the interesting thing as we read this. Because usually it's the king, is it not? Who makes his enemies his footstool. Who goes out in war to accomplish these things. And David did plenty of that himself. But let's note here that Yahweh is saying, I will make your enemies, Adonai, your footstool. God is going to accomplish this on behalf of the Son. The Father will accomplish this on behalf of the Son. He will bring His enemies, the Son's enemies, under His feet. He's now at the Father's hand, ruling on the Father's behalf, He's enacting the divine decrees, and yet he is, in a sense, um, expressing his dependence upon the Father as, not the eternal Son, but as Messiah in his office. He's resting upon the power of the Father to accomplish this. But there's a couple, there's, a, there's one thing I want to say in, in light of this, and this is a slightly off the, the path that perhaps I'm on, but humor me for a moment. The fact that Jesus is now seated at the Father's right hand argues against premillennialism. It argues against the idea that there is a future a millennial kingdom in which Jesus is, that Jesus is waiting for. That Jesus comes and then sets up a kingdom. This passage and all of the New Testament ways that it's used indicates Jesus sits there now. He rules now. Not waiting for a millennium in the reign of Jesus. So. In this mysterious mission, the Father's at work, and yet I believe that Jesus too is at work from Zion, the greater Jerusalem, and He needs help, so to speak, precisely because He is the mediatorial King, the Messiah who submits to and depends upon God, as I tried so poorly to say a few moments ago. He sits while his enemies are subdued. I just said that this text argues against premillennialism. I believe this text also argues against postmillennialism. And now more of you might be upset with me. <laughs> because this does not anticipate um, the conquering of Jesus and then a 1,000-year reign, and then he hands over the kingdom. But what we see here, which is also picked up in 1 Corinthians 15, is he's ruling in the midst of his enemies, 
And when they become his footstool, he hands the kingdom over to the Father. That's at his return. And there's, there's no hint of a golden age of Christianity with a, with a world that has been fully evangelized and has been Christianized. I, I, I don't see that in this passage in the ways in which it is used in the rest of the New Testament. You may beg to differ with me, and that's okay. We'll, we'll throw down politely over a pint and talk about it. Okay, not fists. We don't do that. We can discuss theology in a kind way. David knew about enemies. David knew about enemies before he was king. And not just Goliath, but Saul, the king, who kept trying to kill him. But David also knew about enemies when he was the king. He knew about Absalom, his own beloved son, who betrayed him and tried to become king in his place, who ran him out of town for a short period of time. But that's the good news. There's no one that can run this king out of town. Because he has been seated at the right hand of God, there is no one who can unseat him. There is no coup attempt that can replace him. There is no one who can be snuck in who looks like him but isn't really him. The reign of Jesus is secure. And that is good news for us. We see that he rules in the midst of his enemies. Now here we have to do some theology. Some of his enemies are spiritual. And we see from places like Colossians chapter 2, that on the cross he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so... There's an already aspect of Jesus' reign and the defeat of his enemies. Jesus, uh, in, in the cross, has triumphed over his enemies and has already put them to shame. So there's an already aspect of it. But there's also a not yet aspect of it that we see in the book of Revelation where he will come and he will finish the job. That's sort of alluded to in a lot of what we see here in Psalm 110 with uh, his, him as a conquering king, Jesus will conquer when he returns. But it's not just his spiritual enemies that we see. Uh, there are also human enemies that we see. And we see that already Jesus is subduing sinners through the gospel in this present time. That is part of the kingly work of Jesus to subdue rebellious hearts so that now they want to submit to Him. Jesus is not like the first order which just wants obedience and will crush any opposition. And if you missed that reference, that's okay. Jesus makes rebellious people into submissive people. That's part of the glory of the Gospel. And so Jesus already is doing that. 
But we also see the not yet in which Jesus will judge unbelievers when He returns. I think Alexander McLaren, the Scottish Baptist, says it very well. The choice for every man is being crushed beneath his feet, his foot, or being exalted to sit with him on his throne. It is better to sit on his throne than to be his footstool. So we see from places like Ephesians 2 that those who come to or converted are are not just made alive in Christ, but are seated with, with Christ at God's right hand. What privilege and honor is given to these former rebels. But for those who continually push away the Savior, there will be destruction, not exaltation. But this hasn't happened yet. That's why I talk about yearning and hope. And Romans 8 talks a lot about that. The reality that creation is groaning, waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. They're already sons of God, but they're not known and declared publicly as such. And Paul says in the midst of that, now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And so we're still hoping and waiting for that not yet aspect of the kingly reign of Jesus when he returns to judge his enemies, when he gets rid of all of these corrupt politicians and non-politicians. So Jesus is a mysterious man on a mysterious mission. Jesus is also a mysterious man leading a mysterious mobilization. Forgive me for all of my alliteration this morning. But not everyone is his enemy. David records for us these words of God that, that your people will offer themselves freely. Voluntarily. That there is a, an army of servants, so to speak, that Jesus is, is building a, a mysterious mobilization that is beginning to take place. And so what can we learn about these people who serve David's heavenly master or Adonai? And the first thing that's very important is that they voluntarily come to his side. They are not conscripted. They are not drafted. When I think of this, I think of two things. First, biblically, I think of David. When David was running from Saul, he had these men that went with him everywhere he went. David had no power to compel them to travel with him through the backwoods of Israel. They were there because they loved David. They were there because they saw a future king. They were there because they saw a better king than Saul. He would disappoint them in some ways. But they were there freely. I think also of Braveheart. Remember, 
William Wallace was not a noble. William Wallace was not a king. They were people who were flocking to his side to live and die with him for the freedom of Scotland. He could not compel them. It was his personality that drew them to serve in that way. It is the person of Jesus Christ, the sweetness and excellency of Him that draws people to voluntarily and willingly be within His service. Because they recognize He's the good King we've been waiting for. He's the one I want to serve. He's the one I'm willing to die for. He is the one. So in the present, we see that we freely give ourselves to Jesus in our service as we worship, uh, as we do good deeds, as we bear witness to Christ in evangelism. In all of these ways, we do this freely, willingly, not with our arm twisted behind our backs. We're able to say, I'm yours, Lord. What would you have me do? That's devotion. That's sanctification. Being devoted to someone else. Second thing that I think we see here is that they're in holy garments on the day of His power. My, it's very tempting to go to the idea of Righteous robes, but I don't think that's really what it's getting at here. But I think this is referring to the future, not the present. The future hope we have in our service to the King, and, and that is seen clearly in places like 1 Thessalonians 4, where we see the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry, of command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who believe who are left, we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And the fact is that we're not meeting Him in the air to go higher up in the air. We're meeting Him in the air to come back to earth. The faithful citizens coming back to destroy the unfaithful citizens. That's the image of the word that Paul uses in that particular place. A heavenly army. Angels. Resurrected souls. Glorified saints. Holy garments. Those kinds of things. I'm, I'm reminded in a, sorry, another movie, but we just did watch the return of the king. And there you have another man who sort of compels you by the power of his personality, the kindness of his heart, to want to follow him, Aragorn, the ranger, who's actually Aragorn, the king, who gathers, who goes and gets, who compels the army of the undead to fulfill their obligation to the king of men. This is not a conscripted army, but the army of the dead that willingly joins with Jesus because they've been joined with Jesus 
before they were dead and still are. But an army that no one can defeat, not Satan, not his beasts, or anything else. And so Jesus accomplishes his mission through those who believe, through those who call him Lord. And so as we think of Advent and connect it with Psalm 110, that's what we're waiting for. It has already come, but is not yet fully come. So longing for a good king is not a new thing. It's not connected simply with our plethora of political problems, but it isn't the sub, isn't just the subject of movies, but 3,000 years ago, or we could say a long time ago in a galaxy right here, David longed for a mysterious man. During Advent, we remember this good and merciful king has come and has begun his mysterious mission. And many alive today still long for its completion and join with him in his mysterious army. So don't fall to the false hopes of earthly messiahs promising utopia now. Tim Chester has noted, if we learn to yearn for a ruler who obeys God and leads us into obedience to God. Now, you might think an earthly king can do that, but wait a second. And indeed gives us his obedience when and where we fail. That's what no earthly king can ever do. Then we will love having Jesus as our king. In other words, Jesus a king forever. Will you or won't you serve him? Let's pray. Father, for not with swords loud clashing, nor roll of stirring drums, with deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. With your spirit overcome our lack of generosity, and our obsession with our own needs and security so that we can truly be part of your work in this world. In Christ's name, amen.